0: Welcome to the Want to Learn podcast. I'm your host, France Tapon. In this episode, I interview Robert Hahn, who is a avalanche forecasting meteorologist. And so as a result, I get to ask him and bombard him with a bunch of questions about how to avoid and survive an avalanche. In fact, he even... Survive one himself, a personal story. That's what we start off the podcast with. At the 50-minute mark, we shift over to another crazy survival story in the Himalayas that he endured. And at the 70-minute mark, we talk about Africa and his time at the Peace Corps in Uganda and other places that he's visited as well. This podcast is sponsored by Tour Radar. Do you want to take a life-changing travel adventure, but either hate planning or or you don't know where to start, Tour Radar is a trusted online marketplace that helps you find, compare, and book multi day tours that will expand your horizons through life enriching experiences. And right now, WanderLearn listeners can visit TourRadar for a chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. So just go to com slash WanderLearn to have a chance to win $1,000 in travel credits on TourRadar. We also like to draw attention to the Steelman Foundation as well as the Health Access Sumbawa. Uh,
1: I, I went to undergrad on the East Coast, actually. I grew up in Boston, Um Went to Williams College in Western Massachusetts and continued. Wait a
0: second. Hold on. Stop. I went to Amherst College. You fucking. Oh, Yo, I'm going to strangle you now. I already <laughs> hate you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> For those who are listening, uh, Amherst and Williams are arch rivals, kind of like you know they, they they are the the Harvard versus Yale or the Stanford versus I don't know Berkeley. I don't know. They, they, they're they're arch enemies. So Robert and I already are have an animosity that's just immediately erupted just kidding
1: (laughs) i've managed to forgive you francis because we we share a lot of other things in common (laughs) okay yes Yes, we're
0: both good looking uh go on (laughs) um
1: so so yeah i went uh studied geology at williams college and then um made the journey out to the west coast for grad
0: school wait a second sorry i'm interrupting you again but geology at williams college now doesn't it have a pretty good geology department cuz you guys are out in the middle of fucking nowhere
1: <laughs> I, I I do think that it is a good <laughs> a good geology department um it is it it's small like a lot of programs at our respective schools but um yeah i mean it has a, a great focus on teaching and um yeah there are a lot of opportunities um there's um there's actually an unopened ocean in um the Connecticut Connecticut River Valley, where you have um, you have oceanic basalts, um, There are metamorphic rocks that are um, trending up and down the Appalachians that you can study of varying ages. Um, there's marble in the Williams um, Williams Valley, so um, there are plenty of different rocks to look at. Um, uh, they're not; it's not as exposed as you might find in a place like Montana, so. Um,
0: oh, so Montana is like the hotbed of geology for some students. For structural for la- geology. For, for lazy people who don't want to get out their little pickaxe and actually make do something. Exactly.
1: Well. Yeah, if you want to just see the geology exposed um, and understand it, it's, it's much easier to understand in a place where there aren't trees.
0: And right, and I imagine like the Grand Canyon is like nirvana.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. for sedimentary rocks, yeah.
0: Right, right. Okay, so let's get right into. uh, We'll get more into your background before, because I know that you went off and did some um, your master's degree in Washington State at UW, I think, University of Washington. But um, I wanted to dive right into your avalanche story, because right now you study avalanches, and you somehow, despite being an expert on them. Or maybe because you're an expert on them, <laughs> managed to get yourself into an avalanche. Tell us the story about how that happened.
1: You start thinking you understand how the weather contributes to the snowpacks and how the the snow stratigraphy um, might increase or, or decrease your da- your 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 danger.
0: Hold on, sorry, snow stratigraphy or something? I, did did I misunderstand that?
1: The snowpack um, becomes sort of like like rocks in a in a way. I mean, you you know, you're dealing with um, one mineral h2o and um, it, it falls in various forms it can fall as various crystal snow crystal types it can it can form ice layers um, it, it can form and each each of these layers within the snow is a different density it has different properties um, of cohesion and um, you know sometimes um, sometimes you get a heavier slab over a, a weaker layer and in the middle of the winter, that's what you worry about. Um, and these layers can persist into the spring, t- into the springtime. And that's what happened this year in 2008. We had a particularly cold winter. Um, and so some of these layers that, um, were concerning in the middle of the winter, um, were deep in the snowpack. And when the temperature started to warm up, um, we had one weekend in April when it, it, the temperature in Seattle got up to 70 degrees, um, which um, has become more common in recent springs. But in that particular spring, because it had been so cold, those cold layers were still intact. And um, that first weekend, there were a number of avalanches. And I knew at the time that generally there's a spring transition where this where the snowpack, um, you know, the, the, the snow crystals round, We we call it. So they round and they become um, more stable with, t- with time during the spring. So in my head, that, that transition had occurred over a single weekend. And that was somewhat wishful thinking. Um, it takes, it takes more time than a single weekend. So there was that first warm weekend. Um, and then there was a, there were four or five cooler days during the week. And then the next weekend, the same thing happened. It, it got up to 70 degrees in Seattle, and um i went up to washington pass which had just opened the highway had just opened um it's some of the higher elevation more alpine accessible skiing in the state and there's a particular um tour that had been um highly regarded um called the birthday tour um that my my friends and i wanted to ski um so we we set out early in the morning um, and where
0: was, sorry, what mountain was the nearest prominent mountain that was nearby? I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to picture where this is exactly.
1: Yeah. So it's a circumnavigation of Liberty Bell, basically. Okay. There's, um, okay. it's a sort of a famous climbing, a group of spy of rock spires. There's not, there's not a mountain that's, um, you know, particularly prominent there, but, okay. you know, these, these mountains are around 7,000 feet, um, mm-hmm. I would say the the biggest factor, you know, they're usually, when you debrief an avalanche incident, um, there are often factors that contribute to it. And, and one of those factors was that I was feeling sick that day. I think I would okay, gotten like
0: So you're saying that basically when you do like a post-analysis of how did we get caught in this avalanche, you often find that people, not often, but I guess sometimes find that people are, either disoriented, sick, weak, thirsty, just not thinking straight.
1: There are often a, a number of contributing factors. Human, human um, factors,
0: uh, I suppose you Human would, factors, you would call exactly.
1: They're, yeah. they're usually human and environmental factors that that contribute to it, but... Um,
0: well, yeah, what's human interesting factors. is that the hum, the human factor that I've always heard of is, of course... The human actually stepping on the fucking snow and get and setting off the avalanche as 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 their vibrations and all that stuff, or, or sometimes just even yelling and screaming across the hey dude over here, you know, and that kind of stuff might be enough to kind of do it. But that's a human factor, a physical human factor. What you're talking about is a kind of psychological or non physical factor. Right. That can also impact whether or not you get caught in an avalanche, right?
1: Right, the psychological factors are are generally what we refer to as human factors um, in the industry. Um, yeah, so the the psychological factors um, are often related to group dynamics, and where where I bring in the the fact that I was not feeling well is that um, it 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 caused me not to communicate with my group in the same way. It caused me. Um, to question, uh, I, I guess, I guess to, to take more of a, I'm going along with this role, um, rather than a proactive role on the, on the, on that particular day. And, um, so, so yeah, you,
0: you were basically more passive.
1: I was more passive, you know, normally, you know, you, as you, as you approach avalanche terrain, you, you start, having discussions with your group. What do you think about the hazard here? What what do you think about this cornice that is overhanging the slope? Or what do you think about um, the change in the snow that you're feeling under your feet? Should we dig a, a snow pit? Should we take a look at what the layers are like in the snowpack? And we didn't have but any hold on. of those.
0: But w- were you the only expert in the group?
1: At, my point was I, I was not actually an expert um, okay. <laughs> at the time. And, um, even to this day, I would, I would not consider myself an expert, um, okay. in, in snow and avalanche safety. For instance, um, I do work with people who I would, I would consider at that level. I'm still approaching that level. Um, got it.
0: Okay. What, at that point, how much training had you had? Had you had any training or were you just as dumb as no. me?
1: No, I, I'd had an, a level one awareness course. Um, okay. so I, I, you know, you 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 take a course, you gain some experience. I would not consider myself a novice. I would I would have considered myself an expert backcountry skier, but my avalanche awareness was still slightly behind that in, um, in experience and and probably also in training. So got it, yeah, got
0: it. Got it. okay. And
1: I think that's that's true of a lot of backcountry users who um you know you know the they they're probably putting a lot more time into their sport than they are into their um into their training right so they become right. an expert more quickly in um in that activity um yeah. so Anyway, so get, I
0: get get into the moment when it actually like right before it happened. What were you doing and and so you were not totally with yourself. You weren't questioning the group. You weren't saying, "Hey dude, should we think about this a little bit more instead of just boldly going here?" Uh what was it on were you on a, a steep slope at the moment when uh Yeah. When you witnessed this?
1: witnesses? Yeah, so um we we changed aspects and we we were going down a a, you know, a moderate south-facing slope, full sunshine, middle of the day, set, you know, it, it felt like it was beach weather. It was really warm. And, um, we decided to deviate from the path that, um, most of the other skiers were taking. And that got us into some, some, some terrain that, um, we call it, it rolled over. So it, it became steeper. Um, okay, and, um,
0: so it went from let's say a ten degree slope to a thirty degree slope.
1: I would say it went from maybe a 30, 30 to thirty five degree slope to something more like thirty five to forty. Got um, it. Okay. So, you know that's that's generally the 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 prime triggerable um, pitch um, for avalanches, um, and um, I was the first to ski that particular slope. Um, I questioned my friends about why we were trying to traverse into this uh, unknown terrain. Um, and they said, well, why don't you go? You go first, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you go first.
0: Why are we doing this? Well, I don't know. What the fuck are you doing? You go first, Robert. <laughs> and you're like, okay, guys, I'll do it. <laughs> Even though I'm the only guy questioning this, I'm going to be the first one to throw my ha- ass out there. So how many were you again? How many? The total group size?
1: Um, we were three.
0: Did you have avalanche beacons or any of that kind of stuff?
1: We had shovel beacon okay. and probe, um, and uh, yeah. So basically, I was on Telemark skis at the time, um, and I remember, I remember taking the particular turn that triggered the avalanche, and and um, and just feeling myself as if I was falling over, and in my head I was questioning, you know, am I just so weak today that? I can't pull off a Telemark turn, um, and I was I was really disappointed at myself. And then I realized I was caught in what was like a whitewater slurry, um, and um, I sort of rode rode on the surface um, for s- several seconds, I would say, and then um, I, I washing machined, um, meaning that I went head over heels about. Th- about three rolls each time popping my head o- o- above the surface, um, before the, the slide s- slowed. And I ended up, um, I ended up fortunately on the surface, um, um, kind of dazed and, um, snow blind, s- snow blinded, um, because my sunglasses were the one thing that had, um, went missing. So,
0: well, um, you can't become snow blind just so quickly. Doesn't snow blindness something that normally comes over time?
1: I, I guess that, that isn't the technical term. Mainly, I was I was squinting profusely. Got it.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Right, right. Yeah. I see what you mean. Right. Um, yeah, because snow blindness is when you don't have a sunglasses for many hours or days or whatever it is. And eventually, slowly but surely, you just become blind. it's happened to many explorers and many people who didn't have Glasses, but I understand what you mean. It was just so freaking bright out there that you couldn't see anything. Um, and but but you said, "Well, I might be kind of blinded here, but at least I'm alive and I'm breathing."
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep.
0: <laughs> and and your friends were uh, like a few hundred meters above you, I imagine.
1: They were, yeah. So um, they um, they gingerly went down my avalanche path. There was a, a narrow swath. Um, this was not a slab. It was what we, what we call a, a loose, wet avalanche. I believe, um, at the time we didn't use the current, um, uh, avalanche problem types. So, um, I don't believe it was a wet slab. Um, I don't think I even have a a photo of it. I just wanted to get out of there. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, but, you know, it was a narrow path. Um, the safest route down for my friends was so that they didn't trigger a nearby avalanche because presumably those same instabilities were present next, uh, next to that path. Um, uh, yeah. And, um, so they, um, yeah, they, they reached me and, um, yeah, my, there wasn't a lot of, Um, there was no search or no, or rescue that might accompany a more serious incident. Fortunately, I hadn't hit any rocks or trees. Um, there was no trauma. Um, we just had to, to ski out. Um,
0: and so when, immediately when you got up, you people, you know, you could wave to your friends, dude, I'm still alive, that kind of stuff. So they immediately didn't have to like rush down, barrel down through the, the slope to get you. They just gingerly went down and say, okay. Robert's fine. We just he hasn't broken any legs or done anything like that. Were there trees further down the slope?
1: Um, I was almost at the valley bottom. Um okay. yeah. So the, the the biggest hazards I I passed um on my okay. way down. Yep.
0: Okay. And and a lot of people describe it as kind of like surfing on water or that kind of stuff, and you're almost kinda of, and they, they tell you that when you are in a in a s in a you're supposed to kind of like swim, you're supposed to try to like swim It's just such a strange concept. I've never been caught in an avalanche, uh, so I don't really know how that feels. But that, is that correct? That's what you've heard? I guess, Could did you feel like you could do any of that? You, the way you described it, you're like somersaulting three times on your way down. It seems like you had almost n- basically no control over yourself. But in theory, do you think looking back on it, had you been a little bit more prepared or expecting it, you could have somehow swam to the top, so, so to speak?
1: I, I was... I would say maybe 80 or 90% of the time I was, you know, head up, um, which is maybe not typical of a a larger avalanche. I think, um, yeah, I think there were a a couple of factors here. One was that the nature of the avalanche was more of a wet slurry than it was, um, for a dry snow avalanche, which, which becomes, it becomes a liquid because of friction. In this case, the, the snow temperature was already at at 32 Fahrenheit or zero zero Celsius, and um, you know it really it really behaved much closer to actual white water than um, I've never been in a, a cold snow avalanche, so I can't actually compare it.
0: A cold snow avalanche,
1: right? So midwinter, oftentimes the temperature is below 32 Fahrenheit, and so um, what what enables the snow to to behave in um and to to move so quickly is that it actually the 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 friction between the snow grains um actually liquefies it. And so that is that's what's actually really dangerous one of the things that's really dangerous about a cold snow avalanche is that it, it moves down the slope um as a liquid and then when it when it reaches stasis at the bottom when it stops it suddenly freezes up solidly. And so if you are if you are under the surface you're trapped and you you just um you know you have a li- maybe a very limited air pocket and that right. limit yeah
0: and yes and you have minutes to live effectively because unless you have one of those things that expand and and give you some air breathing space and of course you have other people looking after your ass right right so I mean, it's
1: yeah even the things that expand they're they're usually expanding around your around your head which is good, but sometimes not in front of your face, which, which mm-hmm. is kind of where you need that airspace. Um, but the, the, what the um, I do now have an air, avalanche airbag pack, um, and what that's often good for is is just staying towards the surface. Its buoyancy will help keep you afloat um, in those cold snow avalanches, um, and and also in in, a, in in a spring avalanche as well. Um, and they're also good at protecting you from trauma, um,
0: from when, like head blast or th- that kind of stuff—that physical trauma.
1: Exactly. If you hit a tree, you know, from a certain orientation, you might hit the airbag um, right. rather than how your
0: much skull. do those things cost? By the way,
1: close to a thousand dollars.
0: What yeah. the what fuck? fuck? Really? Holy cow! A thousand dollars for those little airbag things for avalanches? Really?
1: I believe I I actually inherited mine, so I don't I I didn't wow. do the shopping myself, but yeah, they're wow. they're not cheap. Um,
0: wow. Okay, I'd rather be stuck in the avalanche, frankly. Save myself a thousand bucks and die later.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, a lot of backcountry skiing gear is not cheap. So
0: yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, 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 there Robert have there has there been any other time when you actually were caught uh, sorry not caught in an avalanche but witnessed one either from like you set one off on purpose like you always see those guys taking dynamite and blowing up things for nature channels
1: that that area of Washington Pass has not not been friendly to me in the avalanche department but um, I was up there um, with uh, four others and um, our group one the one of the members of our group triggered a, um, we call it, um, a a size two avalanche. Um, it was a cold snow avalanche. Um, he was fortunate, um, because it was shallow. It, It was, it was, it was shallow enough that, um, while it knocked him off his feet, um, there were some small larch trees and he, um, his skis were actually, um, caught and he was not, he was not pulled down slope. And so he, he basically fell over, um, and was, um, self-recovered. Um, wow!
0: he almost like self-arrested himself, if you will, the, the skis got just stuck basically and kind of like l- arrested him. That's what I'm, you know, just like an, an ice axe might arrest, might arrest you.
1: you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So in this case, it was a cold slab avalanche. Um, and, um, yeah, we, you know, there were, there were errors made in that, in that, um, and, um, I, I, wrote I wonder, up the, mm-hmm.
0: I, w- I wonder what the percentage of people who actually are caught in avalanches who actually survive. Do you have any idea? I mean, that's probably a hard statistic to find, but it sounds like maybe majority of the people who get caught in avalanches survive.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that's a tough statistic because, um, you know, avalanches can, can range in size drastically. And I think you have What's, to... You,
0: said, you, you talked about level two. How many levels are there?
1: Five. So okay, and, size and five, one is, is, five is the worst? Five is the worst, yeah. Okay. Um,
0: That's when the whole fucking mountain is falling on you.
1: Right. <laughs> size one is not big enough to, to injure or kill a person. Um, mm. Size two is, um, but... Um, yeah. Um, basically, there are size descriptors for each of these um, and, um, and they, they go up in exponentially. So, you know, the difference between a size one and size two mm-hmm. is a factor of 10.
0: Wow. So it's just like, um, the Richter scale in earthquakes.
1: Yep. Right. So, um, yeah, so, so you're, you, you may, is
0: that because you geologists like the logarithmic scale? Is that what it is?
1: Uh, I, th- I think it's that. Some of these av- avalanches are huge, and some of these are really small. And, and hmm. yeah, I guess so. I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but
0: because it, I mean, you could forget the logarithmic scale and just you know say that's a thousand, that's ten thousand. But I guess logarithmic it makes it cooler, It makes it easier, fewer numbers to write. Maybe you, maybe geologists are fundamentally lazy people. They don't like to write a lot of zeros.
1: Probably everyone is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: good point. Good point. So wow. So so you so you witnessed this guy. He he fell a little bit and then. But you haven't. I mean, I know Robert. There's no answer to this question about percentage of people who survive avalanches. But could you say that the majority do? That's just I say, when I say majority. That's fifty one percent or more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say the ma- majority do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But but you have but you have no idea whether it's. But if I, if I said ninety percent do, would that be you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't feel comfortable saying ninety percent survive?
1: I, I think there's a there's a huge issue of reporting, right? Like, of course, right? Yeah. Right. So I mean,
0: nobody reports that you survived, in, I mean not nobody, but few people report that they survived an avalanche.
1: Well, at the same time, a lot of people don't report that they were in a size one avalanche because. Um, they don't consider it worth reporting. So, um, you know, because that's not an avalanche that's big enough to injure or kill you, basically. And so, the question is: When you say I was caught in an avalanche, do you mean I was, or I survived an avalanche? Did you survive an avalanche of a certain size or greater? Um, because because of this issue of underreporting, at at the low end of the scale. Um, I just think it's a really hard question to answer. Um,
0: Got it. And you survived a a, a type one. Uh,
1: the one I, oh. I I would say it was a size two.
0: Okay, um, also a size two. Okay, yeah. The the most I ever when I was on the Continental Divide Trail, and I there was times when I would walk a, a, along a slope, and then all of a sudden the the slope would crumble, and I would just sink down like. I don't know, a few meters down. <laughs> it's not even an avalanche. Or or I would see it, I would see the slope, I mean, I would see the slope, not collapse, but just keep dribbling down the slope. I guess it wasn't steep enough. Maybe it was only 20 degrees or something like that. So it just the, the the snow would continue falling down, but I wouldn't. I would just witness the snow just kind of creating a mini avalanche, if you call it that. That's probably like a type zero or something like that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, in the springtime that's pretty common where you get roller balls forming in the in the sun's heat um and that's that's a pre- precursor to instability
0: right right uh any uh, before we move on to other subjects um I, I'm fascinated by the avalanches that's why I was, I was starting off with that question. but before we move on to other things any things that l- people who are watching or listening to this should they think about and and tips? Obviously, you mentioned one at the beginning, which is when your slope is around thirty five degrees or so, that's when you should start waking up and paying attention
1: well, I think you know in the in the I think one of the biggest things um for that that we try to stress is that in the u s we're we're generally fortunate because we have these forest service avalanche centers that are putting out public bulletins and so um, one of the first things to do is actually to check your avalanche, your local avalanche bulletin or forecast, and and um, and um, do, is
0: that something you do? By the way, I mean, part of your your job right now is that what you do?
1: Yes, I I I'm part of a team that puts out these products, both on the mountain weather side and on the avalanche side. I write forecast zones. Um, is this
0: you're working on behalf of the government? I suppose, right? Okay, got it.
1: So, got it. Okay. so we have a great resource, and um, a lot of people are using that product. There are some people who aren't aware of that product and should be aware Where, of that product.
0: what what's the website for that?
1: Um, www.avalanche.org will get you to all of a map of all of the um, Forest Service uh, avalanche centers, and you can click on the area of interest. Um, more locally here, I work for the Northwest Avalanche Center, which has its own website, www.nwac.us. Sorry,
0: Sorry repeat, repeat that one now. more time? The
1: www.nwac.us.
0: Got it. Okay. Very good. And so, uh, so one mistake that people make is that they don't, before they go on their hiking or ski trip, backcountry ski trip, is that they don't check in. Right. They don't check. Check
1: for the latest conditions, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's critical to planning. Um, you know, I think, um, yeah. The next the next piece of advice would be really to, yeah, consider um, consider your your hazard in the terrain that you're going to be in relative to what's being talked about in the forecast. If the forecast says you might want to avoid um, terrain. Uh, steeper than 35 degrees today, ask yourself, look at the map, say, am I, am I going to be exposed to terrain that's 35 degrees or greater, either above me or on the slopes that I'm crossing? So, um, uh, a lot of it is, is communication, right? Because, you know, your partner might say, well, wouldn't it be sweet to go up that mountain? And, um, you know, so you, you always have these, um, you you're gonna always have these conversations, and um, one of the tr- one of the tips that I that I learned from a colleague this year is is really you don't add terrain on a tour. Um, you actually as you know you have a plan, and um, the only thing you're gonna do for, you might have several options with that plan, but the only thing you're gonna do is subtract terrain. You might say this terrain is off limits for me today. It's not. Um yeah, it's we don't think it's safe and at no point in the day do you say, well, it it seems pretty stable today. Um let me put that terrain back in play and let me let us let us tour over to that area. So
0: mm. What's the most dangerous activity in the snow? Would you say that the one that's most likely to set off avalanches is, is it mountaineering? Like you're going up with ice axes, crampons, that kind of stuff. Those guys who are climbing pretty steep slopes. The second one is just regular hikers who are also climbing over snow, that kind of stuff. But they they tend to not uh, have as much, uh, the ropes and glacier travel stuff. And the third category is people who are snowboarders or skiers. I don't know if there's in the fourth category, but those are the three that come to mind of the, of the three, which is the one that is most likely to set off an avalanche.
1: I would guess that your answer is actually mountaineering. Um, hmm. uh, but to set off an avalanche,
0: like if it, you're going up actually, Mount Rainier, if you're going up, you know, Mount Rainier is a, is a, is a Seattle is a mountain right by Seattle. Uh, I'm sure there's got plenty of avalanches there. (laughs) I,
1: I, I, again, the, um, the type of mountaineering that you're doing, you know, big mountain mountaineering, your odds are, I think are significantly higher for risk of a lot of different things, including avalanches. Um, the, the types of mountaineering that people are doing at lower elevations, I, I think your odds, um, particularly if you're in, in the late spring or summer might be, might be lower, but you know, there's this, um,
0: no, but if you're a winter mountaineer, I remember this one Japanese guy, he wanted to be the first person to summit a Denali, which is the tallest mountain in North America, in Alaska. And he wants to summit it in the middle winter. And he did by the way, but he never right. came back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't,
0: so I, I imagine that, winter mountaineering is really where you're asking for trouble. Um, Maybe not, or is it spring? spring?
1: Yeah, I actually, we, I haven't given a lot of thought specifically to winter mountaineering. Um, I think your exposure is higher for a longer period of time. Um, skis or snowboards or or actually snowmobiles um, can be a pretty effective trigger for an avalanche um, because effectively you are um, you're able to cut off a chunk of a slab. Um, right,
0: that's, that's kind of what of I was that thinking. Way. That's what I thought, that skiing would just, because you're so much heavier. But you're right, snowmobiling, I guess, would be the fourth category, and that's really dangerous. But on the other hand, I imagine that a lot of snowmobilers, because you have that sheer power and speed that you can either outrace or... I don't know. Get out of harm's way somehow. I don't know if that's true. I think
1: um, you know there there is probably some truth to that. Um, But there are certain days when the size of the avalanche um, and the reactivity of the snowpack is such that um, you know that avalanche once triggered is going to move is going to propagate so widely that even if the this even if the snowmobile is moving pretty quickly, it's still going to it only has a a few seconds to get off the slab before the slab breaks up and becomes this slurry that I was describing earlier. Um, And um, we actually had a number of snowmobile fatalities um, the winter before last. And um, I think that kind of, I think it it drilled home in the, the eyes of the snowmobile community the need to really consult um, our products and to to gain more training um, and awareness. So, um, so yeah, I, w- I would. Um, yeah, the, I think I think this is another case where the the statistics, um, the jury's still out <laughs> on a lot of those questions, and I don't I don't have a, a great answer for it.
0: Has that experience? changed you the one that where you got caught in an avalanche and of course all your now study now imagine because you're studying avalanches you become more confident of maybe about your knowledge and because you're reporting on them but on the other hand i think maybe you become like a police officer police officer i think in looks at the world in a very negative light often and just thinks you know look out there could be criminals everywhere anywhere versus somebody like me i just like think the whole world is great and there's, there's no problems out there because, but I don't deal with crime and criminals every single day of my life. And so, because maybe you're looking at avalanches all the time and thinking about them and all that stuff, you have this kind of deluded impression that they're happening all over the place. And so therefore you're, you're scared shitless about going out there and actually experiencing the backcountry. Do you see what I'm getting at? Uh, How does this impact, how does this impact your personal view of the world? And have you been more reticent to get out there in the backcountry.
1: In my twenties and early thirties, I would have, I would have called myself a risk taker. Um, you know, I, I made some decisions, um, at times that I was just going to accept, the risk in the terrain that I was in, and the main reason was because, um, I, I fancied myself as a, um, as a bit of a steep skier. Um, somebody who was willing to ski some lines that most people weren't willing to ski. Um, and there's a certain amount of of risk that you have to take. You know, you, you generally choose conditions that are... You hope that you, you've chosen conditions that are perfect for the terrain that day. You hope that the snow is consolidated. and But you know that if an avalanche occurs, the outcome is not going to be good. And you also know that... Um, one mistake, making a turn, and the outcome is really not going to be good either. So, um, I think one one of the things that changed for me is, be, as I became a professional in the industry, um, and and part of that happened this year with with the avalanche that occurred on December thirtieth of twenty eighteen. Um, my boss drilled into me the fact that, you know, there there are there are consequences professionally for me and also for our forecast team when, um, when a member of my party gets into an avalanche. And I, so I started to, to view, um, I started to view things a little bit differently that, you know, I, I have to be, you know, practicing as I preach. Um, and, you know, if I'm telling people to stay off terrain greater than 30, 35 degrees, I shouldn't be then skiing that same terrain. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's basic common knowledge. And I think it's, it's part of, part of growing up. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. And also part of lowering testosterone level. I'm a big believer that as testosterone levels cha- you know, men change as their testosterone levels decline and, and they become less fucking stupid because we're really dumb people when we're like 19 years old. I mean, incredibly dumb <laughs> If you look at the YouTube videos about all the stupid shit of people doing like uh, parkour and just (laughs) breaking their ankles, I mean, it's just like that's all explained by testosterone <laughs> it's like you never you almost never see women doing as stupid things that men often do young men do it's just incredible it's the young men who are the suicide bombers we're all that just incredible it's all testosterone they're the ones who are flying off slopes that they shouldn't be on etc anyway so we become wiser uh, as we get older I'd like to think so, yeah. But <laughs> I think probably by we're eighty years old, we still have more testosterone than a nineteen-year-old girl. But who knows? <laughs> so we're still pretty stupid <laughs> at eighty. But um, who knows what the real reality is? But um, any other tips? Uh, I imagine an avalanche beacon is essential, and, and traveling with a buddy and not going out there solo is yes. Yeah, shovel key. beacon
1: probe are essential. Um, the
0: and to have a shovel with you.
1: Right. I mean, you want you you want your your partner to be able to dig you out, and you, you want to be able to dig him or her out if if they get into a slide, um, because you know the over under is about is about thirty minutes. Um,
0: what does that mean? Over under.
1: Oh, if if you are caught in a, if you are buried in an avalanche um, beyond thirty minutes, your survival rate is less than fifty percent. Um, oh,
0: you, you really, you still have as high, as high as 50. I would think that 30 after 30 minutes, well, I guess you could, as long as you have breathing area, you could, you could, you will know, just be cold. So something, what's the record maybe not the record, but what's like the high end, like somebody staying there for two hours?
1: hours. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think two hours is probably about the max. Um,
0: that anybody's ever survived.
1: I'm I'm sure the number is higher than that, but that I've, that I've, Heard of it's you know an hour and a half to two hours would probably be really long, yeah.
0: Wow yeah. yeah. And, and then they and come hour. out with uh, frostbite, perhaps. I don't know, maybe because you're underneath snow. There's a certain level of insulation there that maybe there is. And I, there's no you know, wind.
1: Yeah, the. I mean, the frostbite is not usually the biggest thing that's reported. I, I think you are somewhat insulated. Um, yeah, I mean, it's usually trauma or um you know or yeah asphyxia
0: right so so if if you only could take one thing with you robert if i said no you can't have the airbag what is was what's that thing called
1: uh yeah the avalanche airbag pack
0: okay yeah airbag okay so you cannot have you know you can only take one thing with you would you take the avalanche beacon so you can't even take a shovel for example so what would be and assuming you're with one other partner you're not by yourself. So if you could only take one item to help you prevent an avalanche, what would it be? Would it be the beacon itself? I just,
1: I would take the beacon um
0: yeah. cuz you can always shovel with your hands if you
1: um I would take the yeah
0: because um, because you got a great shovel but you don't know where to fucking shovel then you're kind of screwed
1: right yeah i mean i think you don't know yeah i would take is. the be- beacon I, I i do think um you know if somebody's more buried more deeply without the probe you're not gonna you know you're not gonna know exactly where they are um and without the shovel you're not gonna be able to extract them but um mm-hmm. at least if they're buried very shallowly you have a chance of um, being able to dig them out. So, right. um, yeah, I was actually, um, I actually don't, I don't ski inbounds at a, at a ski area without a, without a beacon now, because I was at a, I was at snowboard, snowbird ski resort on a day when there was an, av- an inbounds avalanche fatality, which is incredibly rare. Um, What's that called? and it was inbound, a, inbound. So it was within the ski area, boundary, they had opened, um, had opened some, some, uh, pretty difficult terrain off of a mountain called Baldy. And, um, some, a skier had been, um, you know, the, every once in a while, they miss controlling a little spot or didn't, they didn't anticipate that the slide would be big enough to potential slide would be big enough to, um, to injure or kill someone. And, um, the the, sk- the patrol calculated it wrong. Um, the person was was buried, and um, you know they were. The patrol was was asking, you know, anyone who had um, shovel beacon probe um, to to go and 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 start probing. So um, in that case, actually, they needed people with 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 probes rather than beacon beacon specifically to do a, a probe line. Um, so yeah. And did you you find find the guy? guy? Um, I, well, no, that that was actually, it resulted in a fatality. I, I was not useful because I didn't have my probe on that particular day. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, So so the guy guy died. died.
1: The guy died. Yep.
0: Rough. Ah, that's really rough. Have you heard about Justin Lichter, sometimes known as trauma? Have you heard of this hiker?
1: Uh, I believe I uh, listened to your podcast.
0: No, no, actually, I never, I never interviewed Justin yet. I, he's on my list. I, I, I'm waiting for us to meet up physically, face to face. But I might have mentioned him at one point. But anyway, he's a guy who hiked. Well, he's done a lot of things, but the the most impressive thing I thought I think he did he he and a partner hiked the PCT in the winter. And now he is a on the ski patrol in the Sierra Nevada, and so he probably has a a lot of practical knowledge, probably not as much academic knowledge as let's say you have, but he has a lot of practical knowledge on how, uh, on how to avoid avalanches. And of course he and his partner survived and they, and they actually did hike to PCT on the winter. But um, I imagine the last question I have is if you're actually caught in an avalanche, I had mentioned earlier this whole idea of trying to swim to the top. Is that pretty much the, and then at the very end to try to keep your hands in front of your face to kind of create an air pocket. Once you stop flying down the, and also to protect your face, I suppose, but also so that it creates a little air pocket of breathing when you finally come to a stop Um, is that's what I've read. Is there any other tips uh, that people should be aware of if they're actually caught?
1: I mean, the key to all of that is figuring out which direction is up. Um, And that can be, that can be tricky. And, um, right. Because I think, um, yeah, in, in general, as you, as you feel yourself starting to go under, you really want to start fighting hard. Um, and, uh, that, you know, try to, try to stay afloat as much as possible. Um, and then I agree. Yeah. Right at, at that moment. Yeah. That you, you feel yourself stopping, really try to like push out with your hands and try to create some space in front of your mouth. Um, okay. So, um, but, yeah, I don't have personal experience with that because, as I said, I, w- I wasn't caught in a cold snow avalanche and I also wasn't, I didn't end up buried, but um, I can say that I didn't feel like I had a lot of control. And, and that's that's what I think is scary about an avalanche is that you really don't have much control the the force of the of the slide is so much more powerful than your ability to generate force
0: right i imagine it's just like a surfer i don't surf but i imagine that's the kind of the similar idea
1: for me it was like you know class class four whitewater um right right right. right. yeah you know it's just so powerful
0: (laughs) you're powerless (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Surfer or for, a, yeah, the, the the power of water, whether it's semi-frozen or frozen, whatever, or real, it's just overwhelming to our muscles um, and our power. Uh, it's very humbling for sure. And now for a 30-second commercial break regarding Tour Radar, our sponsor. They are a trusted online marketplace that helps you find, compare, and and book multi-day tours that will help expand your travel horizons through life enriching experiences, just type in the region that you've always wanted to visit and your preferred travel style and tour radar will do the rest. And right now, WanderLearn listeners can t- visit TourRadar for a chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. Just go to TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn. That is TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn for your chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. And now back to the show. Okay, so the title of this whole podcast is How to Survive an avalanche, and Africa. So we've talked about the avalanche stuff, and now, Robert, I want to shift gears and talk about your experience in Africa. So tell the people uh, a little bit about what you have done in Africa. By the way, before I I want to... How much of the PCT... I forgot if you had done the whole PCT or not. How much through hiking you had done?
1: Oh, I actually... I hiked the Great Himalayan Trail back in 2014. So that was part of... A large Asian adventure just before the Peace Corps, actually. Uh, and, and
0: describe what the Great Himalayan Trail is, because a lot of people may not know about it.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's much shorter than the the PCT, but what it lacks in length, um, it makes up for in verticality. Um, yeah, um, it, it is, I think, one of the most difficult um, through hikes in the world. Um, it's um, it it. It was designated as a um, as a route um, sometime around 2009, and um, it's it's still a, at, at least in 2014, it was still a little bit of a choose your own adventure um, in certain places um, with you know a lot of route finding, asking directions in villages, things like that, um, and um, it's it's often between. Most of the the route is between about two thousand meters and six thousand meters. So um, it really, you know, on on a on a given day, it's not uncommon to have thousand meters or about four thousand feet of four to five thousand feet, maybe six thousand feet on a big day of elevation change. Um, and um, I did it from east to west, so it starts near the India border near Kanchenjunga um and it ends um near Simikot in the in the northwest near the tibetan plateau almost at mount mount kailash um how many
0: kilometers
1: off the top of my head i'm not actually sure i i think i think it's or miles whatever yeah I, I mean i i think it's somewhere in the, the 1000 to 1500 range um okay. coming at it from the perspective of I I think, uh, um, you know, I had, I, I didn't have the perspective of being a season through hiker going into it. And so I didn't look at it as in the same way that, um, say a PCT hiker might, might view it. Um,
0: uh, which, what do you mean by that? Explain.
1: Um, well, so I ran into, um, a couple of folks who were more seasoned through hikers and, um, on the last few days of my journey, I was with them. They, they had maybe set a record in terms of speed, um, 54 days and it took me about 80 days. Um, but I did some of the technical passes, which added a lot of time. Um, but I think, I think the things that really, um, you know, set apart somebody who is a really experienced through hiker, they're going to, particularly in the Himalayas, you you've got to start early in the day to maximize your weather. Um, they're also thinking, and I was thinking about this, was, was um, you know, speed is, is um, in part a function of how much weight you're carrying. And mm-hmm. so they just decided, you know, we're going to choose a route that doesn't involve any technical mountaineering. And we're going to save a lot of logistics and a lot of weight, um, in so doing, and we can move a lot faster. And they were also, um, you know, they were hiking 13 to 14 hours a day regularly. Um, so, so yeah, there, you know, there were certain things that, um, uh, you know, I, I, went with a Nepali guide and, um, part, part of the decision and actually a, a Czech friend of mine, um, joined me for the first third of the, of the route. Um, you know, but, but part of it was that, um, you know, the guide was a mountaineer. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a through hiker. And, um, so yeah, we, we pushed ourselves, but sometimes weather got the best of us and we, we had to, you know, we started after breakfast and, um, it, it, it made, you know, looking at the photos of these, these friends, uh, that I made who who did the route, you know, starting at 4 a.m. every morning, every pass they got to, it was sunny and clear. Most of the passes I got to, it was clouding up and, um, you know, I was lacking the views. So, you know, there, there are some tremendous lessons that I could learn from them. And um, they did a, a little gear shake down with me and they were like, you don't need a lot of these these things that are in your packs. Like, you don't need a you don't need a book, which I basically hadn't read. <laughs> right, you're know, so tired like,
0: at the end of the day. Right,
1: you know, you think you're gonna, you might want, but in fact, your your days are so big, and you're just not gonna have the energy to
0: to read at the yeah. end of the day. That's definitely true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's exhausting. Whether you're hiking eight hours or fourteen hours, either way, you're pretty spent at the end of the day. <laughs> um, now, but when you said. Some of the passes were technical. You mean that sometimes you had to have ropes and uh, crampons and things like that with your guide?
1: Yeah. Um, in the area of going from um, Makalu Base Camp to Everest Base Camp um, is a section of high passes. There are two passes over 6,000 meters, separated by about just a few miles, um, uh, and th- there's actually quite a story there. Um, uh, we were, we were summiting these passes on the same day as a, a French couple and, um, uh, they had a much larger team. We, we just had one guide. Um, and so we combined forces on ropes. Our rope was not long enough to do, um, the several, several hundred meter repel. Um, that was probably the crux of, uh, the technical portion of the trip. And, um, you know, it was getting late in the day. Um, they had a couple of, of, um, porters, um, otherwise known as Sherpas in that part of the world, um, who were, who had set, they had, they had basically used a bunch of their rope and ours to create, um, several rappel lines down the steep ice and rock face. um, And then they'd scrambled off the bottom, which was um, non, it was technically non-technical, but it was, it was close to being technical. Um, And this French woman, um, I don't know if she repelled off the end of her rope or whether she slipped while down climbing just after the end of the rope, but she, um, she flew off the rock and landed In the snow and um i don't know to me to me that was um she she's very lucky that she she survived um she shattered her at least one of her legs um and uh they initiated a very difficult um air rescue the next day so um
0: wow that's amazing um and so you saw it actually happen
1: I did. I was up at at the top, um, shivering in the cold, and um, I, I. I mean, it was so far below me. I didn't, you know, I kind of, I saw it happen, but I didn't. I didn't get a great view of it. Um, right. I just. I knew something was incredibly wrong, and I. Um, yeah. My my friend. So then witnessed. you had
0: to you had to down climb at that point because not only to help her but also to get out of the freezing cold.
1: Well, I, yeah, I repelled, um, but I I did so very gingerly because um, we could tell that she was um, she was in harm's way. There was the potential to um, for rocks to fall down the slope or chunks of ice, um, and when we all got down there, she had. Uh, we, we all carried her into her, her tent. Um, but, yeah, it was a grave situation, um, you know, and I think, you know, with, yeah, I mean, it it, it really speaks to the incredible skill that these helicopter op- operators now have, and they were able to, to stage in this pretty remote location at 6,000 meters. Um, they were able to stage a rescue and kind of, swap helicopters in such a way that they were able to, um, you know, basically holler out.
0: That's amazing. And you witnessed those helicopters coming in.
1: Yes, I did. Um, we, we tried to help the team in whatever we, we, way we could. Um, but it was, um, we were almost out of food, so we basically had enough fuel to, to boil some water for, for the, for, for that team. And then, um, yeah, we wit- witnessed the helicopters. The first attempts, um, were unsuccessful and they, they ended up having to come back the next day and, um, they staged and we, we went to the staging area, um, where they, they brought in somebody to, to lower down with the, uh, what's, what's the term for it? It's like the cadaver, but it's not a cadaver. And she, she was alive. I mean, the, um. Mm-hmm. The encased the stretcher.
0: It's like the a stretcher.
1: stretcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 brought the the stretcher, um, and then they they packaged her up. And another helicopter came back, picked picked her up, um, and so, um, and they actually offered the the helicopter offered our guide a ride out. Of course, he couldn't actually leave because he was with us. But um, my friend ended up. Um, coming down with pneumonia um, the next day and we had another pass to cross and um, we had a little bit of a, a hard time ourselves. Um, quite a hard time, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so, yeah, and it, that, you know... And and
0: what happened? Did you just descend down instead of going over that pass? You just went down to the next village?
1: We didn't have that option. Our, our, our only exit routes were over... A pass. Over high passes. Um, okay. And so... We, um, you know, I, I asked my friend, well, he said, I I don't, he got up and he started moving and he said, I don't think I can do this today. And I said, what, you can't do this today? I mean, it was, it was kind of like, we didn't have an option. So we, I said, let's try. And he, he started, he moved about a hundred meters and he, he was, he said, I can't do it. Um,
0: this was your Czech friend I think
1: yep yep Um, and I I had actually just myself I was just recovering from pneumonia so it was it was a pretty pretty rough um, I didn't realize I had pneumonia at the time but I had the worst cough of my life and was you know had bloody sputum I mean it was it was terrible Um, anyway he we we uh, an Italian you had no
0: you had no food at this point correct
1: we had a we had one day's worth of food, um, and
0: you needed about two or three days to get out.
1: We only needed one day to get over this pass, so we.
0: But he wasn't willing to go that day.
1: Yeah, he 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 physically couldn't. Um, and and, and so, usually
0: Czech guys, I mean Eastern Europeans in general, uh, are pretty tough. And so if he says no, that means really no.
1: He's he's <laughs> tough. Yeah, he's a tough guy, and um, I I respected his what, what he was saying. So we thought about, you know, do we, I had a personal locator beacon we we thought about, do we, do we send a message and, um, try to get a helicopter rescue. But I was, I was concerned we were in Nepal. I didn't know how the systems work, who was going to look for us. Because once you, once you commit to a rescue, you're supposed to stay in the same place and we didn't have enough food and, um, so how much does
0: the rescue uh helicopter like that French woman who broke her leg, how much do you think she had to pay for that helicopter rescue? Uh five thousand dollars?
1: I would guess it's more. I would guess twenty five to thirty because there were two helicopters. No. It can't be that high. I mean I
0: guess it is high altitude, but I don't think it can't be twenty thousand dollars. Anyway, who knows? If you don't know, we don't know.
1: I don't I but, don't know. Yeah, I, I okay. I'm in touch with them. I could I could get you an answer potentially.
0: Okay, um, yeah, I'm just curious uh, how much that... I mean, because she probably didn't have insurance to cover for that kind of rescue, maybe. I don't know.
1: Right. Um, yeah, you know, it's different in North America where um, our governments... If, if it's not... Uh, um, uh, my, my friend was, was evacuated from a ski traverse in Canada this year. Um, he got strep, strep throat and didn't think he could make it out um, and the Canadian government uh, covers the expenses, and they they make the decision that um, if that, that guy, guy
0: wasn't, wasn't Canadian. If he was a Czech guy, he would have made it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, um, <laughs> these North Americans were just a bunch of pussies. It's really true. <laughs> but the eastern europeans if you put a latvian guy a russian guy whatever they'll just i've only i've only chopped off one leg i've still got my other leg i can still make it
1: (laughs) i i I won't generalize but yeah the (laughs) you know i i I, um yeah in that case i was encouraging my friend to try to make it out of, of his own volition
0: but you know, but anyway, and you said they're the Canadian government. Uh, God bless their souls that they, they can actually cover the whole thing. But anyway, getting back to um, Nepal, so you were you are trying to to wrap up that story. Um, you ha- you had your Czech guy who had pneumonia. You thought about, oh, okay, I could launch my personal locator beacon, send out a signal, but then you know, I then we don't have enough food to stay in one place. It might take him three days to get here. And, uh, maybe in a day he will feel better and we can get over the mountain on our own volition and we won't have to pay this $20,000 bill or whatever, thousand, multi-thousand dollar bill. All these thoughts were going through your head. And so in the end, what happened?
1: Yeah. So, um, we ended up, um, we, we tried to send some text messages to a friend of my guide Niamadawa, um, and the, we got no response. So, but we did see a party coming up the valley, um, who had gone over a different pass um, to to get in to the region w- that we were in, and so they were Italians with a bunch of Nepali uh, guides and porters, and they offered to help us stage a higher camp and help feed us for the night and provide us warm food and uh, and such and. We, ex- we accepted, um, Nima and I carried, um, the contents and pack of my Czech friend and, um, we, uh, you know, we staged the high camp, we kind of got him a little bit rejuvenated and then the next day we had, um, you know, what should have been a moderately difficult day became a, an extremely difficult day for my friend, um, but we got him over the pass, um, we, uh, we got down to the other side and, and, um, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the most challenging parts of, of a journey of, of, uh, you know, when you're at your limit, uh, you know, our, um, you know, our communication kind of broke down because in my head, you know, if we, if we go another f- five to 10 kilometers of, of flat walking, um, we're at a village with a tea house, a warm fire, um, hot food. At the, at this point we don't have any, we don't have any food ourselves. Um, and he wanted to spend the night out. Once he'd crossed the pass, he was like, I'm done. Um, and so my guide and I, we, we basically didn't give an, him an option not to continue. We said, we're, we're going, um, we have to get mm-hmm. here. And, um, um, yeah, at at the time we got to the guest house and I remember I I said something that triggered him and he he started yelling at me. So, you know, it was it was a you know, uh I think when you're really stressed to the limits, um, you know, even good friends, you know, you you um you have you have these these moments that um are are
0: tough. Yeah. Um but at that point did he jump off the trail completely or did after he did he recover and then eventually continue on with you?
1: Uh he he only had a month. Um so we we got him to medical care um and uh Yeah, actually uh Nima Dao and I continued for another 5 days without him. He he hiked down to Nam uh to um Lukla and flew out to Kathmandu. Kathmandu, um, Dao and I did the next section of the trail called the roll walling. and then we bust to Kathmandu to meet him there in Kathmandu and spend a few days recuperate, and then we returned to the trail. So.
0: Oh really? Wow. Okay. So you you did go back. Uh, uh, you had a nice little zero day or two in there. Yep. Yep. Nice.
1: Yeah, we had a nice. few zero days, and um, I I actually. We actually skipped maybe two days of hiking um, just because of the, the bus route. So I I technically can't say that I completed the trail, but it was, they in my mind, they were a couple of kind of uh, inconsequential days.
0: Yeah, I understand. Now, I was talking with my friend Sim. In fact, he's one of the most popular podcasts that I have on the Wanderlearn podcast is the one uh, with uh, Sim Blanchard. Who's He was a 66-year-old or 65-year-old adventurer. And he told me that after he'd been to Nepal, he stopped bringing his cameras on his travels or to stop taking photos. He's kind of exaggerating, but he said, it's because nothing else in the world compares to the beauty of Nepal. So he's just like, it's not even worth pulling out my camera anymore. How do you think about that?
1: Uh, He's not wrong. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, I mean... I think I think with Nepal it's it's this um it's it's this combination of incredible scenery with incredible culture um you know you're yeah I mean you have stunning vistas um you know people from varied cultures um that are often in your photos um you know with with just these gorgeous, um, gorgeous Alpine villages, um, to kind of, you know, and, and and so, yeah, I don't think there's, there's been another place in the world outside of the Himalayas where, where, where you have such great opportunities for people, village, and, um, and Alpine photography in, in one place.
0: Um, Got it yeah it's on my list i will go there at one point and now you just encouraged me to do the great himalayan route there What? and uh, I'll, I'll put it on the list i've never been to nepal um so it it's definitely on the list i gotta go there before I, my legs get too worn out and used up so now now the the podcast name has changed it's now how to survive an avalanche nepal and africa <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's evolving <laughs> quickly <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, somehow somehow we'll get to, uh, we've gone over an hour already and we're going to have to get to Africa. So I want to, I want to end with that. And now for a 30 second commercial break regarding Tour Radar, our sponsor. They are a trusted online marketplace that helps you find, compare, and book multi-day tours that will help expand your travel horizons through life-enriching experiences. Just type in the region that you've always wanted to visit, and your preferred travel style and tour radar will do the rest. And right now, WanderLearn listeners can t- visit TourRadar for a chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. Just go to TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn. That is TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn for your chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. And now, back to the show. And so tell me a little bit about your Africa experiences because you've done several trips and several things there in Africa, Robert.
1: Yep. Um, so I joined the Peace Corps um, actually accepting my invitation. Actually, oddly enough, the reason that I ended up leaving the trail, um, the Great Himalayan Which trail, trail? When I joined, Okay. when I did was... Uh, Going to uh, going to Kathmandu, I needed to accept my Peace Corps invitation um, because I had I had quit my job with the promise of uh, not not quite the promise, but banking on joining the Peace Corps, uh, which at the time was a rather prolonged process to get into. Um, and so,
0: how long did it take to get into the Peace Corps from the moment you decide to apply to the moment you were accepting it? Approximately about a year.
1: Uh, I was somewhere between six and nine months. Um Got it. Okay. yeah. It was about the average amount of time. I think that's changed a lot. Um it's the Peace Corps that I the the, the Peace Corps that I'm describing um, you know, applying in twenty thirteen for a position or twenty fourteen um and being a volunteer from late twenty fourteen up to the beginning of twenty seventeen. Um, volunteers who 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 arrived even a year or two after uh, a, a couple of years after me um, they accepted a very specific position but at the time uh, the the peace Corps was was very much um, sort of go with the flow of whatever comes your way and um, right. so um, and that's what it had been since its inception so. So you're saying
0: that the that now in 2019 or so that people are, are – or even by the time when you were going there, they were more specific-oriented, they're not so loosey-goosey?
1: That's my understanding is that um, – and I haven't looked into this a lot, but if you go to the Peace Corps website now, um, you can look at very specific jobs in very specific countries and you're effectively applying for a job within, within an overarching um, – program like you might be ap- applying for health but within health you might be working at a specific health center doing um, a specific type of, of research or we're not probably not research but a, spe- a specific type of work um, at that health center um, so you have a much so the idea is that to meet the the need for trained men and women they can do it better if if, if you're treating it like a job than if you're coming in and kind of you're, you're jack of all trades and the Peace Corps says, well, we have college educated Americans coming in and they can learn how to do whatever they need to
0: do. Right. The, the, the challenge with that is that having visited all the African countries, I just know that in a lot of low-income countries, there's a lot of fluidity in the environment. And so what might be needed when they have to identify these posts, let's say they have to think about a year ahead of time. And then by the time that it comes, you know, things may have changed and needs may have changed. And so I got to believe that the Peace Corps has to retain a certain amount of flexibility in those posts. So yeah, in theory you go there for the specific job and maybe 80% of the applicants actually do the job that they were hired to do. But I got to imagine that a certain percentage of the applicants are forced through the market conditions to change and adapt because that's just the way a lot of low-income countries work.
1: I would assume that the training is still similar and it's still broad. And so, if you're trained from for from, from my case, I was in education, um, and we had, you know, literacy training. We had um, instruction as as um, in the classroom. Um, we we got ex- classroom experience, which I didn't have. Um, previously, or I had, lim- you know, it was limited to TAing as a, as a graduate student um, for undergrads, um, and then, you know, there was, um, you know, there was a lot of training that I would say for me was a little bit less necessary about just survival in um, a developing country. I, as you can tell, I'd spent time in Nepal and various other parts of Asia, um, and uh, but for a lot of people you know survival in an, in a foreign environment particularly an african country um, you know americans can be targets and and finding ways to keep a low profile and 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 also to navigate are important skills so
0: right and by the way for the people who are listening to this they should un- understand that the peace corps even though it's populated mostly by young people in their 20s th- it is open to all ages. In fact, I've met Peace Corps people who are in their seventies who are, you know, just starting and do their two years of service in their seventies. So you can, and I've met people in their fifties, sixties, whatever. So it's open to anybody who wants to get involved. So you got accepted. You went to Kathmandu. You said yes. You clicked on your yes button or whatever you had to do to approve, and then you were sent off so to Uganda? Uganda.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. Six months later, um, I. In November 2014, yeah, I got got on a plane, went off, off to Uganda with a cohort of 37 folks. Um, touching. How on, many of those
0: 37 folks ended up graduating?
1: Uh, I think we lost about six um, yeah, over so the.
0: Was. Um, so was close.
1: Over the over the course of the the 27 months, yeah. Um yeah. To a variety okay. of reasons, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. So continue. So then you were uh, you landed in Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda, and from there you were shuttled off to a village somewhere.
1: Yeah, we landed in Entebbe, um, which is the okay. airport near near Kampala, and uh,
0: it's right yeah, on Lake Victoria.
1: Yeah, right off on a basically an isthmus into Lake Victoria, um, and um, and um, yeah, so it. Um, Basically, I, I was placed in southwest Uganda um, at a primary school, um, and I, I was in one location for about two-thirds of my service, and um, you know, oftentimes, um, well, I wouldn't say oftentimes, but probably in about a quarter, uh, maybe somewhere between a quarter and 50% of people end up getting a site change at some point in their service due to a variety of potential Reasons that might occur, um, I, I shifted. And um, so I went from a very agricultural community um, into a, a community that was entirely surrounded by um, uh, an African game or safari park called Queen Elizabeth National Park.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've actually been there. So I, that's why I remember that. Okay, that's near Mbara, Mbara, or whatever it's called. Thing like yeah,
1: that. so Mbara is the um, the second the, largest the big city. city. Yeah, yeah. city in in the south in the southwest of uganda and and then Mm -hmm. um yeah i was in originally in the deep southwest and then um if you travel up the road towards the renzori mountains or Fort portal you go through queen elizabeth national park and my site was right on right
0: right 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 right. yeah yeah that's right because i remember going going around there and i also that's you probably didn't hike up the renzori mountains to the top of margarita peak i imagine but maybe you did
1: i did i did as a matter you of fact.
0: did yeah dude i love that hike that's like to me though my favorite hike in africa for it is, sure it's incredible it's incredible everybody goes up kilimanjaro did you do kilimanjaro too i did not okay yeah so you're not missing much no i'm just kidding but i mean it, you did the better of the two hikes Margaret margarita peak which is sometimes called mount stanley is the third tallest mountain in africa it's about fifty-two or fifty-one hundred meters. I can't remember fifty-two or I think it's fifty-two. I think it's fifty-one ninety-five or something like that. But um, it's a pretty tall mountain and glacier-filled. Uh, so, what year did you do it, by the way?
1: Uh, uh, Twenty sixteen. Uh, I think it was December.
0: My God, we were there around the same time. I swear, it was incredible. Did you see the the ladder? I don't know if it was still there when you were there. There was a ladder that descended down to nowhere. In other words. Did you see that ladder? I don't know if you remember. So basically, <laughs> On, on the a rocky point, summit? About maybe five, ten years ago, they we were to get to Margarita Peak, which is the tallest point on the mountain. They would traverse a glacier and then go down a ladder to get onto another glacier. And that ladder used to be only about, let's say, three meters tall. And then over time, it went to become like 30 meters tall. <laughs> and eventually they just said, fuck it. We're just giving up because it, we're not going to make a, a super long ladder. We're just going to find another way around. But the ladder stills there, so you I, see. I kind did of see like, that. And okay, I yeah.
1: I didn't make the connection that that it what, was actually what? going onto a glacier. Um, because the glacier's because gone now. <laughs> the glacier's gone. It just it's just on the rock, and there's rock above it and does, below it, and it's like
0: it doesn't. Uh, no, it's not even on the rock, dude. It's like it's just hanging in midair. It's it's hanging in midair because you can't you didn't actually go on that ladder did you right so nobody does because it's it it starts from the top where you're actually on rock and then it just goes on and it would land on a glacier but since the glacier has receded thanks to global warming therefore it's just hanging in midair and it's just to me a poster child. I might not of have seen it warming. actually yeah.
1: Okay. okay. Anyway,
0: but anyway, you probably saw, maybe maybe it's touching rock. I don't know. Maybe it is touching rock. But uh, I remember, I'm like, I'm 85% sure that it was not. It was because I remember talking about it with my guide. I was like, dude, what is that thing just hanging in midair there? That, that ladder that goes to nowhere. And he explained, he explained to me that there was once a glacier there and that that's the way they used to take it. And now they don't take it anymore because uh, they would have had to extend the ladder to a ridiculous level. And to 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 land on solid ground, so they just routed around it. Anyway, sorry. So there was now the weather in the Renzuri mountains. It's I think it's called Rainmaker or something like that. Renzuri means Rainmaker or something like that in the local language there. But they, it's notoriously wet, and except for like the month of January or February around that time when it's relatively dry. But it's what month did you go?
1: It was December. So
0: okay, so then you actually hit the dry weather, the dry season. So how dry was it? <laughs> Not that dry.
1: <laughs> it was. We actually had decent weather. Um, okay, I believe good. it rained the first day, and then. Um, All right. Yeah. Yeah, it actually wasn't. It wasn't too bad. Um,
0: so, for those listening, if you're ever thinking about copying Robert and I and going up this mountain, which I highly recommend, and I think you do too, is that um, go to when Rob went. I did. I didn't go. I went. I, th- I can't remember what month I did. It could have been August or something like that. It was not in the optimal season. But I lucked out there were some Germans who were ahead of me uh, they were coming down the mountain as I was coming up the mountain and they told me they saw zero on the summit it was all and most of the last the days that they were there it was like a lot of uh very little visibility and I lucked out I just got a w- nice weather window where I had huge views the whole time but in your case I think uh you you had some great views as well because you went there in the right right time. I
1: did I did I didn't I didn't get a great view into the DRC which would have been nice but um, because the, did, the border, on
0: the summit what happened on the summit oh, there it was cla- clouds
1: there were clouds okay. on the on the DRC side yeah um, yeah I think I mean you know actually if you can get a a weather window during um, during the rainy season that's when you have the best visibility because there's so much particulate matter in the air in that part of Africa that, um, actually it was, you know, the neat thing about where I was living is that I could actually on a really clear day, I could actually see the snow of the Renzoris from my very hot, um, community in the, in the rift Valley. So I was, I was around a thousand meters and, um, it would be those days in the rainy season where you could, where you could really see it. Um, so, but it was clear enough. Um, I actually climbed, um, sp- Speak or Speck? I don't... Yeah, Speak,
0: Speak. Yeah. It's named after the explorer. I think his name is Jonathan Speak or something like that.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, Before, um, the day before I did did Margarita.
0: Speak was the guy who, I think, said that Lake Victoria is the source of the Nile, the main source of the Nile. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. he was the one who, he had an argument with some other guy. I forgot his name. And uh, Speak won that fight. And, he, he managed to... Of course, he didn't really, really know it. Nobody did at the time, but he, he took the stance that Lake Victoria was the main source of the Nile and his buddy or whatever, his his rival, should I say, was den- denying that. And in the end, history proved to speak right. But anyway, sorry, we go back. Uh, how many other countries did you go to in Africa, uh, Robert?
1: Um, Ethiopia, Kenya, Rwanda... Um and Madagascar, uh, technically, I stepped over to the border into South Sudan and the DRC.
0: I technically did the same thing. I actually climbed the tallest mountain in South Sudan, so I technically <laughs> was in South Sudan. But it's near the Uganda border, and I sneaked in. I didn't have a visa or anything like that, so I'm, uh, I didn't. I did a few more than just. I didn't just step into the border. I literally
1: just <laughs> stepped over to just to say <laughs> I did. But <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Um, well. But yeah, I went all the way to the Tallest Mountain, which was another story, but we'll not get into that. Um, so um, in those experiences, what, Robert, do you think is the thing that kind of took you a while to learn about the par- the parts of Africa that you visited? You know, things that were not intuitive, things that were shocking, things that, that that surprised you from your experience in Africa, that it took you, let's say, a month to learn or more?
1: I guess the thing that took me some time to get my head around and it's still something that I struggle with today is, um, that, you know, there are certain values that, um, that I like to think that we hold as, um, fundamental values in our society. And, and one of the biggest ones I would say is honesty. Um, and I think, you know, that, uh, Honesty is a very flexible value in in Africa, and I think you know you could say that potentially about a lot of the developing world. But I think it's it's even more flexible as a value um, in a lot of Africa, and um, you know that it makes it challenging as a traveler, but um, it 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 really makes relationship building. Um, Difficult when you're working on the ground and you're, you're dealing with people that you want to call your friends, but you you just can't quite trust them. Um, and I think that's 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 one of the biggest challenges that a Peace Corps vol- volunteer faces is to to figure out who you can really trust, and then on top of that, who actually wants to work with you, because there may be people who come out of the woodwork and express interest early on because they see a white person, they see, you know, this, this is going to be profitable for me because this person might have money. They might have connections for me. Um, but you know, there, there are going to, there are going to be people, um, who want to work with you, um, potentially for that reason, but also because they want something good for the community and they see somebody who has the time and the energy to, um, to help with that. And so, yeah, a lot of you know, I can say with my first site um that you know I I wasted months um working with people that didn't want to work with me and they didn't they didn't really have they had a selfish vision rather than a um, a grander vision um and so um but the the neat thing is that when you do find those people to work with, that um, you know, it's some of the most fulfilling work of your life, and that's why people often just des- de- they often describe Peace Corps as a kind of a, an emotional roller coaster because you have these days where you're interacting with people who are really passionate about what they do. Um, they they come from disadvantaged circumstances in, in some cases, and they are going the extra effort to work on these projects that may or may not directly benefit them right and um you know you look at your life in in the US or another developed country for instance and you know you see a lot of people not not willing to volunteer their time at all right and um or you know they might not host a random stranger or um you know Feed a, a random stranger. Um, there there are just these barriers, and and you find, and I think this is true throughout the de- the the developing world. Um, you find that in some of these communities, you know, there there are just there there are customs that that um, you know you know if, if if you have a stranger, for instance, in in Uganda, you actually you cook a little extra food, and so you um, you know if you have enough means, and um, fortunately for Uganda, you know, bananas grow on trees and in in good quantities, so um, frequently a a family will will cook enough for an extra meal or two, and um, uh, at first it bothered me, well, you know, why are we, why are you cooking all this extra food that's just going to go to waste, but it goes to the ruminants, you know, it goes to the pigs, and um, it's, I think it, you know, the 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 overall cycle of of that food is is um, is productive.
0: Right. What about? I mean, what you said was so fascinating about the the. The fluidity of something that's truthful or not. Now, obviously, in the United States, there's also fluidity in truthfulness, and I'm sure you agree with this too. Example is, let's say you ask a hundred of your friends and say, hey, what do you think about my, you know, I just grew out my beard. And I'm sure 80% of your friends are going to say, hey, I love it, Robert. You have a nice beard. And then if you cut your your beard off and shave it completely, and you ask a hundred friends, 80% will say, yeah, you look great without a beard. It looks nice, clean, (laughs) and shaven. So in other words, indicating that our notion of honesty and being truthful is fluid in a sense because we do quote-unquote white lies all day long and we do that as part of society to keep relations and all that other stuff. But you're right that in Africa, it's just at a whole nother level. It's just way more... Um, you can call it lying or whatever it is, but it makes it very hard, I think, to, like you say, set up relationships with people, to work with people, because when somebody says, I'll have it ready by Tuesday, they may never have it ready by Tuesday. It might be the Tuesday next month is what they're talking about. Um, or it's just... Uh, somebody says, "Yeah, I want to work for you. I love it." Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, the, of course, they don't show up the next day when you tell them, "Hey, okay, we'll be here by eight a.m." And they, they show up at noon. They're like, okay, well, I'm here at noon. What's the big deal? Um, and this shit happens all the time. And to me, to Uh, some people blame a lot of the African problems on colonialism and that kind of stuff. And I just like, I don't think the colonialists taught Africans this value or this way of interacting with each other, or that's a consequence of that colonization because I, I just, that culture I don't think exists in the 18th, 19th century as much as it does. Uh, you know, when the colonialists came, the colonialists were people who got their shit together because they came all the way from far away. Uh, so I'm sure there was, uh, and they and they came there. I don't think they learned that value but we have to recognize that Africans often have and again it's a generalization obviously but that they have a value and why does the african country suffer economically why do they struggle Well, a lot of it's that it's hard to run a business when you can't trust your partner and you, and you give him a loan or the guy says, I'm going to buy 10 mangoes from you tomorrow. And he doesn't buy 10 mangoes from you tomorrow. It's hard to get anything fucking done in that kind of society. It's just really difficult. And to blame everything on the white, the evil white guy. Is just ludicrous, I think, because yes, obviously some things have to do with the evil white guy, but a lot of things is just internal problems, that internal things that they've brought onto themselves through their own values. And we, it's politically incorrect to to say that, but I'm gonna say it in my book, and I'm gonna say it in my podcast, and I'm gonna say it over and over again to say, you know what, a lot of the problems are the Africans' fault. And by the way, one last thing on my little diatribe here is that if you talk to africans about africa a lot of times they themselves will be the first to admit that they're fucked up because their own values because their societies because they've they tolerate the leaders that they they have because their village chief is corrupt or on and on because every level of society has problems and they're much less prone to blame the evil white guy than the white people are, <laughs> the, you know, the foreigners are much more. We, we like to self-flagellate ourselves and like say it's all our fault. It's all our fault. But the Africans themselves are more likely, I think, in my experience. I don't know about your experience. To, to say, you know what, we're screwed up because, well, we're screwed up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say that's. I would say that's generally true. Um, yeah, uh, you know. Um, Colonialism is a pretty complex topic um, because, you know, it occurred. Um, it occurred before almost anyone. Anyone's that, or most of the people that I interacted with, don't really remember.
0: It. And of course not. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's <laughs> there. Uh, the average a life expectancy in Africa is around 55 years old or so. And so it's it's certainly in the villages. It doesn't reach much more than that. And then independence of most African countries was over about 60 years ago. So it's just do the math. They they didn't see it.
1: Right. Um, So, so people, um, people in general. um, Yeah, I, I I think, I think they, they do struggle um, running businesses, as you mentioned. um, And, in general, um, yeah, they would, they would, they would, they would blame issues with, within their culture. Um, but I think a lot of the, the problems originate from, um, potentially like I I found actually there were, there were certain cases in Uganda where it was very difficult for me not to lie because of strict societal structure or strict societal values. Um give,
0: give me an example, um, of example of that.
1: Okay, let me give an example um you know I um let's say I was um let's say I was out late at night late late at night and I was coming home to the compound where I was living. Um in uh in southwest Uganda I was living with an upstanding family members of the church. Um, but maybe I didn't want them to know why I was, why, who I was, who I was visiting, for instance. And so I might, I might be questioned in the morning, you know, we heard the dogs barking when you came through into, through the fence into our compound, you know, where were you? And, and so I, I might, I might say I was visiting my Peace Corps friend and, um, you know, I, I, didn't tell them the exact truth. So so that, that's that's sort of the the example that I would um, one of the one of the many examples um, that you know because it just wasn't worth I, I, I knew that I knew the opinion that I would get um, right. if I told the truth and so um, it was just it was it was worth telling a, a white lie and not having that argument.
0: I had a similar, uh, my little anecdote that, some, that just jumped into my mind is when I was in Benin, uh, I would, got I just got into this habit that, which all the Africans would do, a lot of the Africans, I shouldn't say all the Africans, but a lot of Africans would do is that they would declare that they're at some place, a meeting point, even though they're not there. <laughs> so, I would say, hey, well, let's meet at this restaurant. And then I would have some girl who say, okay, I'm there. I'm like, What do you mean you're there? Where are you? Because I'm looking around this restaurant and you're not here. I'm like, and then all of a sudden I step outside. I'm sitting there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. (laughs) I'm sitting out in the street and I see her come up in a motorcycle about five minutes later, but she's declaring that she's there. So then all of a sudden I got into the habit of when I would say I would be, I'd get on the motorcycle taxi to go to the meeting point, let's say to the village square and i know it's going to take me about let's say 6 minutes i call the person and say hey i'm there already <laughs> because <laughs> and i did the same shit that they always do to me so that because i know that if cuz a lot of africans they will not move until if until they know that you're already there you tell them let's meet at the village square at 6 They'll say, Yes, yes, okay, meet you at six. So then you get there at six and six oh five, six oh ten, and you're like looking at them and then you call them and says, Dude, I've been sitting here for ten minutes, like, okay, I'll be right there. And then they finally getting out of their asses. They won't move until they know that you're there first. And then they'll move. And then they'll declare that they're there when they're not there.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a problem. And it's a problem for organizing meetings, for instance. You know because there's this hierarchical structure the the more important folks they want Come to be last. the last ones to show up at the meeting right so yeah. then you 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 have this problem where you know well, they call in, is everyone there is everyone assembled and you know by the time that you know the the higher up actually shows up, some people have already left because you know they're like <laughs> I'll
0: you know, I, I give you an example when i do. was when when I was in Kampala. Uh, I can't remember the event. It was a tourism conference and stuff like that. And the president, Museveni, or whatever that guy's... What, how do you pronounce his name? Muse- Museveni. Yeah, yeah, Museveni. He was coming to speak at 8 a.m. So, of course, we dutifully showed up like at 7.45 to hear the 8 a.m. speech of the president of Uganda. And guess what? He shows up at 10. <laughs> So he has like a thousand people or maybe 2000 people. I can't remember how many thousands. Maybe 3000. I can't remember. Anyway, it was a big fucking room, huge room. And guess what? He shows up at 10. Now, maybe Bill Clinton, I know Bill Clinton was kind of famous for being late for a lot of meetings. But anyway, the general point remains. Yes, you're right that in important meetings the 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 important guy shows up very late. It's very frustrating. What other things by the way Robert did you uh That that were kind of like head scratchers for you in Africa, or or at least Uganda. How about male female? How about male female relations? By the way, one one sorry before I interrupt you here, but one of the things that you kind of mentioned, you know, about the whole lying thing. Some people might be listening to this and saying to themselves, "Well, maybe Robert, you were lied to more than the average person because you're the foreigner, you're the Mzungu, and so therefore." Africans have a tendency to lie more to the foreigner than they would lie to themselves because they can see through their, each other's bullshit. But, uh, do you think that's true or do you think that uh, you weren't getting lied to any much more than anybody else was being lied to?
1: I mean, maybe I was being lied to in different ways, but I definitely saw plenty of times when, you know, Ugandans would be talking to each other. they would be communicating and they would say, um, Sort of, uh, they would they would even be telling each other, you know, I'm I'm in your town or something, and when, when in fact they were across the country, and and you know it was just like, you know, it's like I I, I don't really understand the point of it, and and, and it's like, uh, so I I can't say that it was exclusively. Or, or, or in any in any way, more directly towards me, but um, it was probably, uh, you know, potentially the 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 lies were pro- probably more often designed with a specific purpose um, than sort of just you know it's a game. I I, I felt like in some cases with Ugandans it was. You know, it was like, it was part of the games that they play with each other. Um.
0: Right, right. Well, this it's not just Ugandans, dude. It's all, it's so much of the sub-Sahara is like that. And it's it's prevalent. That's what, things that shocked me is just, I expected more differentiation, but there was, yeah, I saw that stuff over and over and over and over again in different in countries, different cities, villages, everything. It was just just, uh, it was surprising to me. Um, okay, so what other things surprised you, by the way?
1: Well, I I would say one of the things is that, um, you know, in in Uganda in particular, and I can't speak as as much to the other countries I visited, um, you know, there there are a lot of, um, I I mean, there are very strict gender roles, as there are in a lot of African countries, and, um, you know, women are very much expected to be subservient to men and to, to cook. Um, and, um, I, I, think, um, I mean, you talked about this on one of your podcasts, um, was the, the degree of infidelity, which is incredibly high. Um, I would say maybe unlike the woman in Tanzania, it seemed to be probably higher among men than, than women in Uganda. Um, but, right. Uh, well, that
0: that interview that you heard from Tanzania, I, I disagreed with that woman. Um, that that the women were more unfaithful. She was declaring that women were more unfaithful than men, and I disagreed with her. But you know, she I respect her opinion. She's Tanzanian, so what the fuck do I know? But um, my wife, who's African, she disagreed. Now, granted, not from Tanzania. My wife is from Cameroon. So, uh, but anyway uh, continue so you're saying that in in Uganda the men have a tendency to be less faithful than the women
1: yeah and they're, they're, they're just they have so much more freedom right the the woman if if the woman is not at home cooking when the man gets back and it, if there is not a meal prepared um, some Ugandan men might might beat their wife um, and and so there's there's this sort of gender-based violence that um is kind of ex- accepted more than it well i mean it shouldn't be accepted at all but it 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 is accepted within the within the society um that these are the expectations of the role of a female and if she doesn't perform them she deserves to be beaten that's sort of the you know one of these expectations i think um and then you know this double standard that you know if if she then goes out and, and um, talks to a man, she's probably sleeping with him and, and being unfaithful, and then she would also get beaten. So you know there, there are all these um, yeah, and I, I, I think um, I think in Uganda, more than more so than any other country that I've visited, um, the the traditional values around that are are very strict. Um, because, because Christianity is, is so, uh, ingrained in a lot of the culture and it, and it's, it's a more extreme form of Christianity that I, than I saw, for instance, in Madagascar, where it's much more fluid and flexible and kind of interwoven with traditional values, uh, traditional beliefs and, uh, animistic cultures. Um, so, so yeah, the, um, um, you know, and, and, that strictness um, goes goes into the dress codes. Women in Uganda are ex- expected to wear dresses. Um, men are expected to look smart. Smart being the British English for, you know, they're expected to, you know, wear an, a well-ironed shirt and pants and, um, I shouldn't say pants because in Uganda, that pants are actually underpants. Um, right. <laughs> So
0: trousers, I know it's funny. I remember, I remember when I met my wife, this is actually before I met my wife, we met online, but, uh, I was going to, my first date, the first time we actually were going to see each other, we're going to go to a event in, uh, Cameroon in the capital, Yaounde, and it was going to be a tourism conference and it was a tourism event. And so it was kind of semi-formal. And so I told her, I said, uh, do not come here in, uh, shorts you know like I, I can't remember I can't remember I, I, I said to her wear pants it's conservative or something like that and so she was just like what do you mean this guy's perverted why is he telling me to come in pants of course I'm going to wear pants like I mean, what does it matter whether I'm wearing pants or not because she's thinking panties for for her it was trousers so I'm like this complete perverted white guy saying I want you to wear your sexiest pants <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's 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 very true. Um, w- There's so many things to talk about, Robert, but I have to, we have to wrap it up because it's getting closer to our two-hour mark. But I wanted to get a, a sense from you, um, if the Peace Corps is something that you feel is doing overall, you know, is worth our tax dollars. Is it, you know, when you look back on the experience? Obviously, I, I imagine most people enjoyed it from their perspective, but is it actually making change? Because one argument, you know, Peace Corps was invented by JFK in the sixties. And you look at Africa and yes, there's been tremendous progress in Africa. No doubt about it. And Bill Gates, I think has done a lot of good documentation. Many other people have documented how well much progress there has been made. But the question is, is that, you know, at the same time, much of Africa is still far behind the rest of the world and the other continents. So some people will say, well, is the Peace Corps doing any good? Or not any good, but should I say, is it worth it? What do you think?
1: I I would say yes. Um, I would say relative to if there's going to be any aid at all. And I think that's that's the question that I think deserves to debate, because um, if there's any aid at all, um, Peace Corps is a, a low cost and relatively effective way of transferring knowledge in a way that empowers people to, um, to kind of improve their own lives and their own communities. Um, that's not to say that I think that every Peace Corps volunteer is effective. Um, it's not even to say that I think that I was as effective as I could be, but I think that, um, You know, it gave me a way to get into a community and it gave me a way to work with ideally people who wanted to work with me. And it took me some time to figure that out, who those people were and some luck of landing in a community that wanted to be worked with ultimately. Um, But essentially, when I look at the other forms of aid, I look I look at them oftentimes as they're giving things of high monetary value to the, To the communities, and I think, um, I think one of the challenges that Africa faces is that, you know, oftentimes, at this point in the growth trajectory, um, you know, the technology and the um, and and a lot of the and and healthcare um, are actually outpacing. Um, sort of the, the ground roots development of the society. And what that leads to is, you know, if, if you, um, you know, it leads, one of the things it leads to is tremendous population growth. Um, but yeah, I think there's an imbalance there. And I think like, if you look at, um, quote Western or developed countries, usually those countries developed organically with, with the the technology of the time. And, you know, it, it, um so so yeah I, I think that um you know there there's kind of no there's there's no going back on it at this point i mean the that we live in a globalized world, technology is going to come in um but um some of that aid and some of that infrastructure um that's sort of being forced onto the to societies is absolutely good for life expectancy um but yeah, it's ultimately going to uh, lead to imbalances. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a, an easy solution because, you know, nobody wants, nobody wants to deny healthcare to people. And so um, uh, I think, you know, I think what's happening is probably, you know, it's, it's, it's an experiment that's going to play out. And, um um you know there there're gonna be major challenges within the the society that that you know governments are having to deal with like huge unemployment rates and um you know um uh thing things like that and 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 that's gonna re- result in political instability um yeah
0: yeah, I I hear what you're saying, and a lot of times I go back and forth on this question. Uh, sometimes I get wildly optimistic about Africa. I think about some of the progress it's made. And on the other hands, I look at the, kind of like the demographic time bomb that they're creating, um, the fact that, yes, although fertility rates are have been dropping, uh, a lot of, you know, like you're kind of alluding to, this idea that the the mentality of having lots of children hasn't changed that much. So now all of a sudden they're more successful at having lots of children, and yet for a society to kind of uh, advance quickly, you don't want to have an excessive amount of children. Um, To have five, six children is too much for society to kind of absorb if there's not the job creation engine behind it. And how can you have a job creation engine when you have a society that doesn't trust each other like they often don't do, and some of the problems that we talked about before. So that makes it difficult. So all of a sudden you have this vast unemployment because nobody wants to start a, you know, a lot of people don't want to start a company. To start a company is very hard and challenging to be an entrepreneur and to build a a business. You need to be able to depend on the government. You need to be able to depend on other people, your suppliers, your customers, that they'll pay their bills, that the suppliers will supply your goods and your your raw materials when you're going to need them. Uh, on and on, you you just need that trust in order to build up a society. And Scandinavia is like the polar opposite of Africa in so many ways, not just the weather. It's the fact that there's a lot more trust in that society. It's a lot easier to like get things going there. And, uh, that's something that's so endemic in Africa. And it's, they really have to, it's a chicken and egg problem. Like, how do you get over that? And uh, like you say, there's this issue of having so many children, You, you have to build up infrastructure. You have to build up schools, hospitals, roads, um, internet, et cetera, to help give the tools for that next, that young generation coming up. But if they don't have it, and then there's one last thing that you didn't mention, which is the 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 onset of AI and the onset of automation here and in, because instead of moving to low cost labor places and you know, there's a hope in among Africans that low cost labor will move from Southeast Asia and uh, East Asia all the way to Africa because now China is becoming more and more expensive. So maybe they'll look to Africa to manufacture stuff, but with AI and with uh, automation, maybe the jobs will actually come back to the United States because we can just build robots here at home and just make the have the robots do it I'll have the the AI operate here we don't need the african cheap labor and then what the fuck are the africans going to do it's a real headache
1: yep yep yeah no it's it's it is a a challenge um yeah and i i have one more comment about um you know the fertility rates and stuff like that which is And going back to this question of what surprised me, and and I I remember having conversations with people where, you know, some Ugandans, I I think, I believe foolishly, you know, they compare themselves to their colonial, former colonial power of, of Great Britain. And they say, you know, well, Great Britain has 100 million people, and they're the size of Uganda. Shouldn't we have thirty-six million or thirty-seven million people. Why don't we? Why don't we just keep producing babies? And why don't we have this? Um, you know, we'll, we'll become great like them. And um, you know, it, 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 it To me, um, you know, you know, Great Britain didn't develop a population of hundred million people overnight. It, it gradually increased. It had industrialized. Um, it found ways of, um, you know, doing some, um, some really, uh, yeah, uh, intensive agriculture, um, and, and other, other mechanized things that, that enable people to, um, to, to live, uh, comfortably or relatively comfortably. And, and even that said, um, you know, the, the livelihoods of, of Britons might be a lot better if they had a third as many people.
0: <laughs> so. Right, right, right. And yeah, speaking yeah. about a third, uh, so for those British people listening to this and say, we don't have 100 million people, we only have 66 million. I think Robert is just talking in generality. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, right. Just the idea that they need to catch up to, because Uganda's population is definitely lower than the UK's. I'm not sure the UK. Uh, maybe it's like twenty to thirty million Uganda. I, I'm not sure exactly, but it's definitely not. It's about half the size. Okay, yeah. So it's about half the size of the UK. Their former British. Yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating. I mean, the, the fertility rates are dropping uh, for sure, um, but uh, there's so much. It's 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 a real challenge with Africa to know where to actually start. You know, where if like if I were president of a country in Africa, I'd be like, whoa. I don't know where to start. It's, 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 it's a long process, but you know, let's hope, let's hope that's all they can do. Um, well, thank you so much. We have a million, I could keep talking to you for another hour easily. Um, because we, we've, we've just scratched the surface of some of your experiences. Uh, we didn't talk about Madagascar. We didn't talk about, uh, Ethiopia and on and on and on. But, uh, Oh, we'll we'll say that for our future podcast. Now, uh, last thing uh, before we go, you want to give me a plug. You're working with an organization, I think, right now in Uganda that you want to potentially plug. Can you go ahead yeah, and talk um, about that briefly?
1: Yeah, the Kazinga Channel Schools Project. Um, it, I'll uh, link to it, that in the
0: show notes, by the way. Uh, but to say it more slowly.
1: Kazinga Channel Schools Project. So, my community was located on the Kazinga Channel, which... Um, Within Queen, Elizabeth, within Queen Elizabeth National Park, there are two larger lakes, um, Lake Edward and um, Lake George, and there's a channel that runs between the, uh, them. And there are a number of small communities that were um, that were allowed to continue their um, their fishing um, existence when the park was gazetted um, uh, some years ago. So. Uh, these these communities face unique challenges because they they don't have they don't have agriculture um, fishing is often a um, it, it, it's it's viewed as a sort of a uh, a never ending resource and as a result it it ends up being leading to some vices um, that usually result in communities with higher HIV rates. Um, and um, you know uh, certain challenges. So, um, so these these communities for southwestern Uganda, I would say they're they're slight they're they're on the underdeveloped side. Um, so my Peace Corps counterpart um, who is is really great. Um, his name is Ramadan, um, like the holiday. And um, uh, another Peace Corps counterpart who has my same. Um, English name Robert. Um, the two of them formed, founded the Kazinga's Channel Schools Project with the idea of um, uh, of taking a set of um, environmental and um, educational practices. Often, that um, at least the educational practices are uh, things that they learn through their interaction with the Peace Corps um, uh, to to try to. Improve educational outcomes and, in general, community outcomes. Um, and so, it's an organization, and an organization that's quite small. It's it's run by these two volunteers. I'm a board member, and I'm you know I'm trying to gradually build it up um, to a point that it it can be really um, self-sustaining. Um, at the at the moment, it it runs off of about three hundred U.S. dollars a year which is my annual gift to, to it. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're looking, uh, we're looking at growing the organization. I think it's proven to be successful, um, for, you know, high impact for the minimal amount of money that it it has doing reusable menstrual pad projects, um, which give young girls, uh, an opportunity to be in school for more days. Um, a lot of westerners don't think of menstruation as being a an impediment to education but in in um a society where um you're 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 afraid that your your friends are going to know that you're menstruating or that um you know where that's you know that is sort of a very taboo topic um it it, it can be incredibly difficult um and then um while I was a Peace Corps volunteer, we built a library in, in the school. Their 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 goals to to get um, more more literary resources into some of th- these communities um, that are further from the main road, um, and then um, they and and um, their, envi- their environmental projects are are kind of getting people excited about. Um, uh, and knowledgeable about the environment, because these are going to be the next stewards of Queen Elizabeth National Park. The people who are there, and and they're the they're the ones who are really interacting at the border of the park. There there are often conflicts between the 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 wild animals and domesticated animals, for instance. There, and and that creates conflict between the Ugandan Wildlife Authority and the local communities. And so, you know, the more um, the, the better educated these communities are, um, the, the better off, um, the, the national park is going to be going into the future. Um, so, so yeah, there are a number of, a number of projects. And, um, I think at the moment I'm looking to try to sort of increase funding up to about, um, a thousand dollars a year as we kind of, um, as we kind of build and, and we continue to to, to, to gradually um, continue to increase our ability to um, to make an impact.
0: Excellent. Well, I hope somebody is listening to this writes you a $1,000 check and that's, that'll be done. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for all your time and all your stories about uh, Africa as well as the Himalayas as well as avalanches. Wow, we covered a lot of topics. And uh, if anybody wants to Get in touch with you. Uh, I know you, you and I are connected on Facebook but is there any other way that uh, you like people capturing uh, connecting with you?
1: Yeah you can uh, connect with me th- via my email Robert at gmail.com um, so um, yeah feel free to, to reach out to me um, if you have connections to that part of the world if, you, um, if you're interested in the kind of work that I'm, I'm doing there, um, there's there's even a small project in Madagascar that that I got involved with trying to conserve a, a literal forest um, with uh, by planting vanilla. But if we have another podcast in the future, we can talk talk about it. <laughs> so
0: awesome! Yeah. Uh, well, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> there's so much to talk about, and uh, I will go ahead and post your Facebook profile on the show notes and. And the information uh, that you've given to me as well. Um, And uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Robert.
1: Thank you, Francis. It's been a pleasure as well.
0: And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to WanderLearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F. Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. Ftapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember Ftapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, Ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the Wander Learn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.